0: Thanks for listening to the podcast from River's Edge Church in Spokane, Washington. For more information or to gather with us on Sunday, visit our website at respokane.org. We hope this message is impactful for you and others as we pursue the way of Jesus together. Uh, We're going to continue in our series through the Bible in a Year. And if you've been tracking with us, um, we're still in Genesis, so don't worry. Uh, But we're going to get all the way to Genesis 18 this morning. We're going to start in Genesis 15. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis chapter 15, and we'll start there. Uh, It took us like three months to get through the first couple verses, and uh, last week we got all the way to chapter 12, and then this week we're going to get all the way to chapter 18. Yeah. Yeah picking up the speed. So um, what I want to do just before we jump into reading the text is uh, just talk about kind of the overview of where we're headed. We're going to talk about this character Abraham. Uh, if, you're, if you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, that's okay. Abraham also has the name Abram. His name changes through the story um, because of his mission. And so he goes from Abram to being called Abraham. And what we really want to focus on today is this really notorious statement Um, that gets quoted uh, over and over again, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so we're going to read through that in Genesis 15, Um, but just an overview from Genesis 12 to Genesis 15, Genesis 12 is where we get introduced to this guy, Abram, and he lives in a place called Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, which is in modern Iraq. And he lives there with his family, and God, seemingly out of the blue, comes to this man and says, hey, I want you to come follow after me. I am going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you a land to call your own, and you are going to be a blessing to the entire world. Uh, The the text of Genesis 12.1 just says, go from your country, this is God talking to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. And we talked about last week how Abraham uh, is used by God as a blessing to the world because through Abraham's offspring, principally that's Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, God would bless the world. But then also, because we are called children of Abraham, we get to join in with that same mission of blessing the world. That's what we talked about last week, if you are with us. But what happens next in the story from Genesis 12 to 15 is Abraham gets up. He leaves everything. He leaves his Father and mother, he leaves his tribe, he leaves his land, he leaves his gods, and he goes and follows after the creator God, the one that we've been reading out about from Genesis 1.1. And by the time we get to Genesis 15, Abraham gets a little mouthy with God. So we're going to read. After this, this is Genesis 15, verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me? Can you imagine saying that to God? What can you give me, since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars. If indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. So what we're going to talk about today is this calling of Abraham and what Abraham is called to, and, and really how that connects with us. But there's this really notorious statement in verse 6: Abram, also Abraham, he believed the Lord and he, that's the Lord, credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness. We actually sang it in the last song. If you've been in in Protestant churches for any extended period of time, guaranteed you've heard both the word righteousness talked about or sung about, and you've you've probably heard this passage referenced or other passages in the New Testament that reference this passage from gen, This passage from Genesis 15. So. Paul, uh, one of the guys who writes most of the New Testament, picks up on this and talks about it all the time. So in Romans 4, we have this repeated quotation of this exact phrase. Paul is talking about righteousness and quotes, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Uh, Through the argument in Romans 4, he keeps quoting. It happens again in verse 22. It was credited to him as righteousness. Later, in a a letter to the church in Galatia, Paul does the same thing. He quotes this same phrase. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It even happens in the book of James, and James references this. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. The, The writers of the New Testament seem to be really familiar with this idea. But, but what is it that Abraham believed, and what exactly is righteousness? That's kind of what we're going to explore today. You see, when I first came to faith, I could have readily answered those questions, or at least I thought I could. I, I thought, okay, essentially what it means is that Abraham believed in God, or at least liked God to some extent, and then somehow that made Abraham righteous. It, it gave him this status. And, and for many of us, that's the extent to which what we've been taught this means, and we've been taught to look at Abraham and say, okay, Abraham believed God. He just believed him, and I mean, for a long time, I just thought that meant he believed that God existed or something like that, and, and I, I thought, okay, well, I should be like that. That would be the best step to take, and so for some of us, um, that was, that's the extent to which we've been taught what it means to live the Christian life is really believe in God and then hold on until Jesus comes back. For some of us, that's the extent to which the Christian life has been laid out for us. Believe in God and just hold on until Jesus comes back. Uh, Still, for some of us, it's maybe a little bit uh, one level deeper and it says, okay, believe in God, hold on until Jesus comes back, and in the meantime, just try not to sin. And if you do, it's okay because God forgives you. And that is the extent to which the Christian life is described. But What we're going to ask is: Is it really that simple? Is that really what's going on in Genesis 15? Is that really what the New Testament writers have in mind? And is that really what Jesus' teaching in the Gospels teach us? Is that really what the New Testament teaches us? Is that really what James or Titus teach us? See, if you've been around River's Edge for long enough, you'll hear this phrase over and over again. Because what we we believe about following after Jesus is this call to learn to live, love, think, serve, and lead like Jesus. That's discipleship. That's the Christian life. So today, what we want to take a look at is this fundamental and foundational phrase, really what it means. What what does it mean to believe? What is righteousness? What is faith? Really through the lens of Abraham's calling. So let's think back. What did Abraham actually believe? Well, like I said in Genesis 12, what happens is that God comes to this guy, Abraham, and says, hey, Leave everything you've ever known. Leave your family. Leave your land. Leave your security. Leave your language. Leave your tribe. Leave all of that and come be my people. Essentially, what God is asking of Abraham is for him to realign his loyalty. Come be my people. Come be mine. I'll give you a place to call your own and you'll be a blessing to the world. Are you in? I mean, that's the call that that God gives Abraham at first, are you in? And Abraham gets up and he leaves everything he's ever known, all of his security, and he goes. And it's this new set of loyalty that God calls for. We, We don't necessarily get it living in 21st century in the U.S. because on average we move to a new place every three years, we make new friends, we can find a new job, it's pretty normal for us. But in a time and a place where everything that you could have was within walking distance and everything you ever knew was within walking distance, for the God of the universe to come to this guy and say, hey, go to a place I will show you. I mean, if I was Abraham, I would be like, can you show me a map first or can you show me where we're going? But God just calls him, follow me and I'll show you where we're going. He leaves his security. And we get this note later in the book, of Joshua, about how Abraham in his family in Ur of the Chaldeans, he he worshipped other gods. So so God comes to him, the creator God of the universe comes to him and says, hey, leave those old ways, leave those old gods, come and be mine. He calls him to a new set of loyalties. And in the face of that big ask, Abraham says, okay, trust me, is essentially what God says to him. And Abraham says, I do. Now, if we go back to Genesis 15, if we understand that as background to Genesis 12 and the calling of Abraham, it helps make Genesis 15 make a little bit of sense because God is calling him to this incredible act of loyalty and trust where he's going to have kids. The promise is directly that Abraham is going to have children. And this is what Genesis 15 says. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. So here's what Abraham's saying. God, you promised me this, and I don't know if you've noticed, but I have no children. What can you give me? I don't have any kids. And this Eliezer of Damascus guy, he's the one who's going to inherit my estate. The biological clock is ticking, God. What is going on? Don't worry, Abram. Trust me. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. God, you said there would be children, and there's no children. What is going on? Abraham, you'll have a son. Go look at the stars in the sky. That's what your offspring are going to be like. God calls Abram to trust. When Abraham is believing God, what he's doing is he's trusting and he's living out this new loyalty. So as we think this morning about Abraham and what does it mean that he believed God, well, that's essentially what's going on. He's, he's trusting God. He's showing his new loyalty. He's exercising this new loyalty to the God who called him. And, and it's not that much different from what Jesus does to the fishermen, to the first disciples. And it's not that different from what Jesus does for each and every one of us today. Just like Jesus came to fishermen like Peter and James and John and says, hey, leave everything and follow me, Jesus does the same thing. He calls us to loyalty and trust. God called Abraham, God called the fishermen, and he called and he's calling each and every one of us to trust and loyalty. Not just mental agreement to a set of principles, but trust and loyalty. Now, Abraham was not perfect, and so in a couple weeks, we're actually going to look at the ways in which God was faithful to his promise, even though Abraham totally screwed it up over and over again. Um, If you know the story, Abraham, there's plenty of times where Abraham doesn't show trust and loyalty, but God is faithful in the midst of that, which should teach us something, especially because the New Testament writers still pick up on the fact that Abraham is this hero of the faith that should teach us something about the way that God uses us even in our horrific failures. But but the point this morning is if if we're reading Genesis 15, 6, and we read, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, what we could read is Abraham showed trust and loyalty, and God saw this as righteousness. But what is righteousness? So if you love, like, uh, like Hebrew lectures, hopefully you'll like this part, and if you don't, I'm sorry. <laughs> we sing the word in songs. and We've talked about it all the time. We read it in scripture. But what does it actually mean? Okay, the Hebrew word is "sadakah. So tzadokah, and it's used over 400 times in the Old Testament. And in order to understand it, what I want us to do is turn one more passage, probably one or two pages to your right, to Genesis 18. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to Genesis 18, and we'll see another story with Abraham, and we'll see this word tzadokah come up again, which is translated as righteousness or sometimes it's just right. So we'll read in Genesis 18. If you're familiar with the story, what happens after this little exchange between Abraham and, and God is that a couple chapters later, Abraham is outside of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God comes to visit Abraham. And Abraham shows him hospitality. They sit down for a meal together. It's really interesting. And then we get to verse 18 of chapter 18. And I have to find it too. Okay. Abraham will surely, this is God talking, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. There's a lot going on here. But God says, I have chosen Abraham because he will teach his children. Those are the children that God will use to bless the world. He's choosing Abraham so that he can teach the children to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. And this word for right is that word tzadikah. But The word just is also important. So these two words, right and just, they actually get paired together in the Old Testament a ton. Over 36 times do these two words appear together. It's and mishpat. To understand a biblical concept of, of righteousness or justice, we have to understand tzadokah and mishpat together. On Monday, this past Monday, we celebrated the, the life and work of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And in his famous I Have a Dream speech, Dr. King actually quotes from a passage that uses tzaddikah and mishpat together. So within the speech, Dr. King is uh, kind of having this rhetorical conversation, and he says this. He says, As we walk, we must make the pledge that we shall always march ahead. We cannot turn back. There are those who are asking the devotees of civil rights, when will you be satisfied? And then Dr. King goes on, and he goes into explaining that we won't be satisfied until racial injustice, police brutality, the indignity of segregation and racism, and the unjust political structures are made right. We will not be satisfied until that happens. And then he says this, no, no, we are not satisfied, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down Like waters and righteousness, like a mighty stream. As I was reading and preparing for for today, I actually had those words kind of echo in the back of my head because when I listen to the I Have a Dream speech, I get chills. Um, Dr. King quotes this passage, one, because he's a really gifted speaker, um, but he's a minister. Uh, First and foremost, he was a minister and he was the son of a minister, and he's a faithful reader of his Bible and what he's quoting is Amos 5:24. So I know many of us are really familiar with the story of Amos. Thank you. I, you know, you have to look at the table of contents to find where Amos is. That's fine. But I'll put it up on the screen. Amos 5:21 to 24 is what Dr. King is quoting. See, in the book of Amos, God looks at Israel and their religious activities their offerings, their sacrifices, and even their worship music. And then he says this, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Verse 24 is what Dr. King quotes. Evidently, you can actually go through all the right religious activities, festivals, sacrifices, even worship music, and yet you can still miss the point. The Proverbs even say it more succinctly. To do righteousness and justice, that's Zadokha and Mishpat, is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. So what does it mean? What is Zadokah and Mishpat? What does it mean to do what is right and just? Well, I wish we had time to spend going through the 400 passages of the usage of it, or the 36 times they're used together. But you have to take my word for it in one sense. And if you don't believe me, I will recommend a resource for you. There's a book by Tim Keller called Generous Justice where he walks through the uses of Zadokah and Mishpat throughout the Old Testament and really what it's communicating. But I want to give us a working definition for today. Here it is. Righteousness and justice are life with all relationships, God, others, self, and land, well-ordered so that life is full of shalom. Righteousness and justice are life with all relationships, God, others, self, and land, well ordered, so the life is full of shalom. That's all things flourishing as the way God made them. And uh, if you're unfamiliar with the word shalom, shalom is this idea of God's intended state of beauty and peace and completion. Now, this this definition might be hard for some of us, because for some of us we think of righteous as like a decent guy who follows all the rules. That's generally what we think of righteous. Or we think of justice in one of two ways. Either we think of justice as bad guys getting what they deserve, that's sometimes what we think of justice, or some of us will think of this concept of social justice, uh, either in a positive or negative way, and we think of things like food stamps and welfare and clothing and medical care to the disadvantaged and eradicating classism and, and stopping sex trafficking and all those things. And there's surely overlap between those concepts, but it's crucial to understand that when we see the biblical concepts of justice and righteousness, they have a much grander vision And in my mind, they're compelling for that reason. Ultimately, tzadokah and mishpat are about right relationships. The alignment of relationships to the way that God designed them to be. And so this includes sin being restrained and done away with. This includes human flourishing. It includes ensuring that those who are vulnerable or powerless are given dignity and protection. And it would be impossible to talk about tzadokah and mishpat without talking about one of the reoccurring principles that happens throughout the Hebrew Scriptures around four groups of people. Now, when you see tzadokah and mishpat throughout the Old Testament, there's four groups of people that repeatedly come up. The poor, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner living among you. If you read through the Hebrew Scriptures and you look at where tzadokah and mishpat come up, you, you see these four groups of people come up. And they come up because they're a social group with, with no power they're a social group who are vulnerable. And the, evalu- the evaluation is how a society cares for those people. That's the question around and mishpat when it comes to the Hebrew scriptures. How does a society care for those people? Tim Keller, who I referenced, who has that book, Generous Justice, even says it this way. He says, the mishpat, or justness, or justice of a society, according to the Bible, is evaluated by how it treats these groups. Any neglect shown to the needs of the members of this quartet, those four groups, is not called merely a lack of mercy or charity, but a violation of justice or mishpat. It's a violation of shalom. It's a violation of well-ordered relationships. And this is precisely what God is calling on the nation of Israel for in Amos 5. See, because in the book of Amos, and it happens throughout the, the prophets, is that the nation of Israel, they're doing all the right religious things. They're showing up at temple, they're going through the worship practices, but they're neglecting the poor, the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner living among them. They're neglecting to bring about shalom. So it's important then to answer the question, what does a righteous person look like? What would a righteous person do? Well, more than just being a decent person who follows the rules, It's someone who just like the Lord does, it's someone who disadvantages themselves for the sake of others, for the sake of justice and righteousness. I'll say that again. It's someone who disadvantages themselves, just like God does, for the sake of others and for the sake of righteousness and justice. Now, I want to come back to that idea of of disadvantaging ourselves for the sake of others or for justice and righteousness when we come to the tables, Um, but We'll return to that in a second. Let's just move on with another thought. In the end, uh, or in the speech uh, that Dr. King gives, he, he quotes Amos 5 uh, because he looked around at the world and he saw that relationships and shalom were broken. He, he longed for the day when he would see justice and righteousness. What, what God calls Abraham to, and in fact all of Israel to, and then the teachings of Jesus reiterate to us, is this idea that the world is made up of relationships. Relationships between God and humanity, between humanity, one another, how we relate to ourselves and how we relate to our land, how we relate to the world that God has given us. And the reality is that when Abraham walked the earth or in AD 33 when Jesus was crucified or when Dr. King was assassinated in 1968 or today, those relationships remain fractured and broken. That's the world we live in. Those relationships remain fractured and broken all around us. But the good news is that God is in the process of making all things new. And what he's doing is he's seeking people who will join with him in that. God is making all things new. He's he's mending those relationships and he's looking for people who will join with him in that process. He's seeking people like Abraham. Abraham who will do what is right and just and then teach his kids to do what is right and just. He's seeking people who just as Jesus modeled will disadvantage themselves for the sake of righteousness and justice. God calls Abraham and he tells us it's because he will teach his children to live this way. And then Jesus teaches us and then shows us with his own life what it means to actually do that. How to live in right relationship with God, others, self, and the land and how to do that in a well-ordered, just, and right way. When I first tried to read the Bible, and tried to read through Genesis 12, 15, 18, and tried to read those passages, I often got lost, because you're like, what does this really have to do with me? I mean, this guy walking around in sandals, probably, in like 110 degree heat, snowy outside. I grew up in California, so it was hot, but for, for those of you who grew up in Spokane maybe had that same experience, you're like, this is, I'm, I'm millions of miles away from Ur of the Chaldeans. What does this have anything to do with me? We're, we're centuries removed from this. And then the text started to make a bit more sense when I started to understand, okay, well, essentially what's going on here is Abraham is, is believing God and maybe even exercising trust and loyalty. I didn't really understand that at first. But essentially what I said, like I, like I mentioned before, I should try and aim for that. That was... That was that next step for me, was just saying, okay, well, I should aim for that. But, but with more and more study and more and more reading, I've come to see that, yes, absolutely, I should aim for that. And, and Abraham gets this status as righteous or righteousness given to him by God because of his, his belief. But I've begin, begun to see that Abraham's faith, his trust, and his loyalty is seen by God as righteousness, not in some abstract way, but because Abraham is rightly ordering his relationships. Uh, Abraham is loyal and trusts God, and so he rightly relates himself to the God who made him. And and he begins to trust God, and so he's rightly ordering himself towards his wife or towards that guy, Eliezer of Damascus. Abraham is, in a righteous way, ordering himself towards the land that God has promised him. So when God sees his belief and it's credited to him as righteousness, well, it's because he's, starting to relate rightly and justly. And this is, in a sense, it's opened up my imagination to understanding why Abraham matters, why the Old Testament matters. Why do we read these stories and narratives in the first place? Well, I begin to see that Abraham's trust and loyalty, it's part of his righteousness. And the rest of the Hebrew scriptures, they they help me understand what it means to live out justice and righteousness. And I begin to see a continuity, like I never did before, between what we read in Genesis 15 and our daily lives here and now. See, we don't read about Abraham simply because of historical interest, but it's because we're reading about a God who has been faithful to his creation all along. He's had a plan of redemption all along. And so we read about God and his faithfulness through these stories and what he's calling people to do. Like I mentioned, he's calling people to join in with him in that process of making all things new. The difference for us, and this is really crucial, there's a difference for us that, and we have an advantage that Abraham never had. Next week, we'll talk about Genesis 22, and there's one more aspect of Abraham's calling, which is this idea that Abraham is called to look for provision in the Lord's Messiah. And so in Genesis 22, we'll read about uh, the near sacrifice of Isaac and what Abraham does in looking for God's provision in the Messiah. But we have an advantage over Abraham, Because we've met the Messiah, the Messiah has already come and we've been able to see a down payment of that provision. And so that advantage plays itself out in two ways. First, even though we're called to the same things as Abraham, we're empowered by the Spirit to actually accomplish these things. We're actually empowered by the Spirit to do them. And then second, we are assured of forgiveness when we fail. Because of the person and work of Jesus, We have these advantages, the indwelling spirit, spirit, the power to actually live these callings out, to work for for justice and righteousness, to live lives of trust and loyalty, and we have a promise and assurance of forgiveness when we inevitably fail. That doesn't lower the bar, It, it actually gives us confidence to try and live this out, because just like Abraham was called by God, just like the fishermen were called, God calls you and I. And the table this morning is what reminds us, it empowers us, it places in our midst a reminder of that calling and a reminder of the fact that Jesus is the one who perfectly lived out that trust and loyalty and justice and righteousness and he came to die and he came to save people like me and people like you. As we receive communion this morning, I want us to take a moment to use our imagination. Imagine if we started to live out this calling. Just take a moment to think about that. Imagine if we actually started to live out this calling. If if our lives more fully reflected loyalty and trust and justice and righteousness, what would be possible? What would our neighbors, what would our coworkers, what would our family members say? If we were really a people committed to these things, we'd probably look and act a little bit differently than everyone else around us. At the communion table, we are reminded of the God who disadvantages himself for our sake. If you read through the New Testament, um, there's, there's both a passage in Philippians 2 that's really crucial, and then in 2 Corinthians, I think it's in 8. But it's this idea that God disadvantaged himself for us. The king of the universe subjected himself to a crown of thorns. The king of the universe subjected himself to a crown of thorns for you. 2 Corinthians 8 says that God, though he was rich, for your sake became poor. God disadvantaged himself to see justice and righteousness to see right relationships restored, to see the possibility of them. So as we come to the table this morning, just one simple question as we use our imaginations. What's one way, what's one step, what's one thing that we can do this afternoon or tonight or tomorrow to rightly order our relationships? And I'll just add as we come to the table, if we're inclined to avoid something, you, Thomas, you come in to get communion? Great. Yeah, go ahead. If we're inclined to avoid whatever that is, if that first initial reaction is to avoid it because it's going to take some self disadvantaging, might I suggest that it's going to be the best thing for us? Let's pray. Lord, (laughs) you love us. And you've given yourself up for us. They can be empty words for me to remind myself that the king of the universe subjected himself to a crown of thorns. But in reality, I can't even imagine what that would be like. You call us, you invite us, you empower us. So God, as we receive communion this morning, I pray that you would speak to individual hearts and minds. You would move us to be people who live out trust and loyalty, who believe you and get to experience the same things that Abraham did. In Jesus' name, amen.